Today's scripture passage is found in Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongues that make great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, you are good, you are faithful, you are perfect, you are true. God, we thank you that your word to us is good and it's true, and it's pure, and it's powerful to affect change in our lives, Lord. So I pray that today you would be at work through the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would be at work even now to change our hearts and our lives, to make us more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I have nothing valuable to offer at all, but your word has everything, and so I pray that your spirit would make much of your word and your message, and that your name would be lifted up and glorified above everything else. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Zane Sills, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Redeemer Church. Uh, for those of you um, uh, that don't know me, I'm not the pastor here. If you're visiting with us, uh, our pastor is Jamie Mosley. And he's out of town for a couple of weeks on some very well-earned vacation. So I would encourage you to come back. Um, I don't think he'll be preaching next week. One of our assistant pastors will. Uh, but I think he'll be back in the uh, pulpit in two weeks. So uh, please come back. Um, to, uh, if Our normal method of preaching here at Redeemer, again, in case you're visiting, is that we pick a book of the Bible and we preach through it from beginning to end, and then when we finish that, we normally pick another book and then we preach through that. But every once in a while, in between books, we come back to the Psalms and we camp out for a few weeks. Uh, there's a lot to talk about in the Psalms. There's 150 of them, so we've got plenty of content to cover. And so uh, we typically do that every once in a while, I think usually during the summers. And so that's what we've been doing for the past few weeks. Uh, today we're going to be in Psalm 12, as Brittany just read, and the title of our sermon is, Where Are the Godly Ones? So as we've been discussing for the past few weeks, the book of Psalms is a collection of Hebrew poetry and a collection of Hebrew music. These chapters are meant to provoke in us a spirit of worship before God. They're meant to provoke in us a particular emotional response to God, depending on what the psalm is. And I think it's really important, and it's my hope and prayer that by the end of today's sermon, that the Holy Spirit will, grab, will have grabbed a hold of each and every one of us in this room to produce the response that is being called for in this particular psalm. 
And specifically, Psalm 12 is a psalm of lament. So we all know that lament is a form of sadness, but biblical lament isn't just regular sadness, right? Specifically, it is a deep mourning over sin, over the effects of sin, over the brokenness that is caused by sin. And there is no greater tragedy than sin and how it separates people from God. Um, If you have been with us for the past few weeks, you may be thinking, oh no, another psalm of lament. These people at Redeemer love to lament, don't they? Um, One thing that I will say is unique about Psalm 12 is that uh, it doesn't just rest in that lament. Uh, Also, there is concurrently a strong tone of hopefulness in this psalm. Uh, And while the scriptures never leave us without hope, they ultimately always point us to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Uh, There are certain portions of the scripture that really do rest in tragedy and lament without offering a whole lot of immediate resolution to that. Uh, But then there's passages like Psalm 12 uh, where the hopefulness immediately comes alongside the lament and it's impossible to miss. Uh, So by the end of the day, I hope that everybody in this room is going to be in a posture where we experience lament over sin in our lives, lament over sin in the life of this church, lament over sin in the life of the church at Broad, uh, but also in a place of longing for the Lord to come and fix the devastating effects of sin, and specifically a place of hopefulness and confidence that he will finish the good work that he's begun in us, both individually and, and also corporately as a body. So Psalm 12 is organized in such a way that it presents a problem, but it also presents an appropriate response to that problem. So the problem is is right here introduced in verse 1 of the psalm. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from the children of man. So the problem here is that godliness has been diminished among the people of God. And then the response, which we'll be talking about in the second half of today's sermon, the response is to cry out to God and seek repentance and restoration as the people of God because of this problem. So we'll be talking about the problem itself today and discussing our first point. And the first point of today's sermon is signs that godliness has been diminished among the people of God. So we're going to be talking about three different ways in which this passage lets us know that godliness has been diminished in the covenant community. But before we do that, I think it's important to understand a little bit about the context of the psalm. Uh, We don't know for sure who wrote this psalm. Uh, If you look at the notes in your Bible, um, you may have some text right above Psalm chapter 12. Maybe it's italicized that gives some some details about the psalm. It likely indicates that it's a psalm of David. These are uh, not inspired, but they are notes that are handed down uh, through transcripts by rabbis and scribes and probably fairly reliable and accurate. So good chance David wrote this psalm. Uh, I think what we can be fairly confident of is that this psalm was written during the kingdom period of Israel's existence. Um, And during this time, God's people existed as a set-apart people, a separate nation-state, and he expected them to behave in a particular way uh, that showed a difference in their lives and how their lives were to be different from the wicked pagan nations that surrounded them. But guess what? According to this psalm, at this point in time when it is written... God's people are not living as they're expected to by God. Not only are they failing to live godly, set-apart lives, but they are falling into sin and wickedness in a very public way that's on display for everybody to see. Uh, And the first way that we see that they are not displaying godliness 
is that truthfulness is not valued by the people of God. Truthfulness was not valued by the people of God in this, in this setting. And so how does this psalm describe the situation? Well, it says right here in uh, verse 2, everyone utters, li- everyone utters lies to their neighbors. That's pretty straightforward. It pretty much means exactly what it sounds like it means. Uh, the use of the word everyone here is meant to demonstrate the pervasiveness of this lack of untruthfulness among the covenant community. It's penetrated the culture of the people of God at every level. The people are also described here as having flattering lips and speaking with a double heart. Uh, so what does this mean? It means that people have ulterior motives to what they're communicating. Uh, they know they're lying and they choose to do it anyway because of some of them are benefiting some sort of, they're getting some sort of gain or benefit that they're receiving by telling mistruths. The people of God uh, in this passage are also described as seeking to elevate themselves above others through the use of untruth. So how do we see that? Well, if you'll look at, at verses 3 and 4 and calling for God's judgment on this, the psalmist says in these verses, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. So particularly that ending bit right there, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. These are people that are seeking to elevate themselves over others through the use of falsehoods. They're looking to put themselves in a position of dominance, power, authority over others. They're using untruth to do that. Apparently, the truth does not give them the results they want, and so they result in dishonesty, or they rely on dishonesty and lies to establish their position and gain. And remember, all of this is happening among the people of God. I don't think the psalmist is talking about the Philistines and the Moabites or any of the other pagan nations at this point. I think the psalmist is more concerned with what is apparently an abject lack of concern for truth among the people of God. So we see here pretty clearly a giant problem of truth versus falsehoods in God's covenant community. Uh, Now there is a lot that we could say about this topic, um, and I think there's a healthy bit of application here. But we're really going to get more into that in the back half of today's sermon um, when we're talking about the appropriate response to God. For now, let's continue exploring the ways in which this passage shows that a lack of godliness is being demonstrated here. And so the next thing we see, the second way we see that a lack of godliness is being demonstrated is that the poor are not cared for, the poor and the oppressed are not cared for by the people of God. The psalmist says here in in verse 5 that the poor are being plundered and the needy are groaning. Uh, This is not an unusual way for the Bible to talk about the poor or the needy or the oppressed. There are over 2,000 references in the Bible to the poor and to poverty. The Old Testament is seriously concerned with the plight of the poor and the oppressed in the context of God's covenant people. Just read the books of the law, read the histories in the Old Testament, read especially the prophets. This gets talked about a lot. God is seriously concerned with the plight of the poor, with the plight of the oppressed, with the plight of the suffering. And God gets really angry at his people and he judges his people when they don't care for the poor among them. And unfortunately, this happens a lot in the Old Testament. God's people fall into a cycle of sin. And that sin is often, in the Old Testament, evidenced by a failure to care for the oppressed. And even worse, sometimes a participation in the oppression themselves. Uh, And then God, when this happens, God judges his people harshly. 
And we see repeated patterns and cycles of this throughout the, the Old Testament. It's a very common occurrence. By the way, when God's people fail to care for the poor or even participate in the oppression themselves, it's, not, it's more than just a sin towards the poor. A lack of care for the poor and oppressed in the covenant community is a major indicator that the community lacks fidelity towards God. So let me say that again, because that's, that's very important, and I think we see it quite a bit in the Old Testament. A lack of care for the poor and the oppressed in the covenant community is a major indicator that the community lacks fidelity towards God. Uh, in Proverbs 14.31, it says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And nowhere is this more clear, I think, than when Jesus talks about the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is teaching, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking about the final judgment and, and what would be communicated to them at that moment. And he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these my brothers, you did it to me. There's a lot of other places we could go in the Bible to further demonstrate this, but the Bible is very, very clear the lack of concern and care for the poor and the oppressed is a demonstration of a lack of fidelity towards God. And conversely, faithfulness in caring for the poor and the oppressed can be a demonstration of faithfulness towards God. Friends, we can have all of the best theology in the world. We can be right on all of our minor and tertiary doctrines and have the right position on everything. But if we don't have a heart for the poor, if, we don't, if that does not manifest itself in a heart for the oppressed, it reveals that our theology is empty and vain. Just like in Old Testament times among the people of Israel, when they did not have a heart for the oppressed, when they participated in that oppression themselves, it revealed that all of their worship and all their piety, which they thought so highly of, was in vain. Again, I, there's, I think, some more application we can do on this, uh, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk about the last way we see a sign that godliness was being diminished among the people of God. And that is that sinfulness was revered and exalted. So verse 8 closes this psalm on kind of a troubling note of tension. It says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. So it says among the people of God, vileness is being exalted. So sin and wickedness is being lift up, lifted up. It's being honored. It's being celebrated. And because of this, it says that the wicked prowl on every side. That means they're, they're pervasive and everywhere because in a culture that celebrates wickedness and honors wickedness, people can sin openly without shame. So I think it's critical that, again, we take a moment and highlight the context of this passage because I think it's really easy to take a look at the things that are going on here, the things that are talked about here, uh, truth not being honored, right? Uh, the poor and the oppressed not being treated well, wickedness being celebrated. It's very easy to think about those things and then immediately look outward and start thinking about the secular culture around us because we definitely see uh, those problems and issues going on. We live in a culture that suppresses the truth. We live in a culture where oppression and poverty are shockingly common. 
We live in a culture where sin is celebrated and shouted out loud. But today, I don't want you to mainly think about out there and what's going on in the culture around us, because the culture is an utter mess, and that's easy to do. And I don't think the desired intent of Psalm 12 is to make us primarily think about out there either. I think the primary intent is to make us think about in here. Remember the context. We're talking about God's Old Testament covenant people who existed as a set-apart, theocratic nation-state. And despite all of that, these, com- uh, these sins were very common in their midst. Now, in today's con- context, we don't exist in the same way the people of Israel did. Um, we exist as the church. And so what I want you to do today, and I think what Psalm 12 would prompt you to do primarily, is to ask, is the church similarly failing in these areas? And if so, how? How does the church reject truth and elevate falsehoods? How does the church neglect and oppress the poor? How does the church celebrate unrighteousness? Friends, these are uncomfortable questions, but we first must look inward before we look outward. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves and answering these questions, we'll see the ways in which the church is guilty of failure in all of these areas. And we as a group of people here at Redeemer Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee, have a particular responsibility to vigilantly guard our specific local covenant community here to make sure that we aren't falling prey to these sins. So let's move on to our second point today where we'll be talking about the response of the covenant community to diminish godliness. Stands to reason that as a covenant community, if we see these things going on around us, like the psalmist saw when he wrote this particular psalm, then we should respond just as the psalmist responds in this passage. And so the first thing that we notice is that the psalmist cries out to the Lord for help. Cries out to God for help, and we should do the very same thing. Our immediate reaction should not be to try and fix the problem ourselves. Uh, The solution is always to go to God for help. So by show of hands, how many of you are the kind of people that when something is not going the way it should be, when something is wrong... Your immediate first reaction is to develop a plan and try and fix the problem. It's like, looks like well more than half of us. Uh, I am definitely that person. I am a chronic planner. I am a chronic problem solver. I think probably a lot of us in our, our, our careers and everyday jobs, we do a lot of problem solving. And so we just get into this mode where that becomes the reaction of how we try and treat everything else in the world. Um, I think it's important to remember that in the context of sin, in the context of brokenness, in the context of the covenant community, we are not the problem solvers. When we start to think that we're the problem solvers, we start to run into problems. Um, We can't change people's hearts and lives. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So that's why we run to Him first. I'm not trying to argue that we don't bear some sort of personal or corporate responsibility to behave with godliness and to try and influence others to behave with godliness as well. I absolutely do think we bear some responsibility to do that. Um, But what I am suggesting is that if we try and fix the problem of sin through our own planning, through our own efforts, without first running to God and crying out for help, without relying on his strength, on his power and his work, We are going to fail, and we are going to fail miserably. So it's essential that the first reaction to the diminishment of godliness is for us to cry out to God for his help, to cry out to him for his mercy. So how do we do that? How do we cry out to God? Again, I think we follow the pattern of the psalmist here in chapter 12. 
We should cry out to God for return of godliness among his people. We should cry out to God to protect and guard the godly. We should cry out to God for him to quell the ungodliness. We should cry out to God for him to protect the poor and the oppressed. And then we follow all of that with action because God does demand action from us as well. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So how does this look for us specifically as the people of Redeemer Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee? Well, we're to be a people of prayer. We need to be vigilantly watching for ways in which our congregation and the church, of, uh, church at large is falling short of a biblical call to godliness and wandering astray. And we need to be quick to pray to God for help when we see those shortcomings. And then we need to be prepared to follow up those prayers with godly actions. Uh, specifically in the context of this psalm, I think we need to be prepared to care for the poor and the oppressed. That's what we're being called to, to not ignore their plight. Uh, I think the reality is that we here in this area live in a relatively affluent community. We have been blessed with a lot of... Sorry, I did something weird with the mic there. Uh, we have been blessed with a lot of resources and should use those resources to help those in need. I am really proud and grateful um, and all the glory to God to be part of a church that has given so generously and conducted itself so faithfully in this area. I think we've, we've always done that. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic for the first time, we established a, a specific benevolence fund and this congregation immediately responded with overwhelming generosity uh, through that fund. And over the past two years, we've given over $42,000 to people who are in emergencies, in, in dire situations, people who are in crisis mode, who are, who are needing help, um, who are experiencing some form of brokenness or other trouble in their life. And we've been able to respond generously in caring for those who are in need. And so I hope and pray that Redeemer Church continues that spirit and that posture towards the poor and the needy um, going forward. So the next way that we, sh uh, that we should respond to a diminishment of holiness among uh, God's people is that we should affirm a commitment to the truth of God. We should affirm a commitment to the truth of God. So the psalmist here affirms his commitment to God's truth by poetically elevating the words of God. So how are the words of the Lord described in this passage? Well, his promises are, are described as sure. So we see this in verse 5 when the Lord says that he will arise to defend the poor and the oppressed. The Lord's promise here is treated as assumed and automatic because the Lord's promises are guaranteed to happen. When God says something, it's true and it's going to happen. The Lord's, prom or the Lord's words here are also described as pure, and we get this comparison to silver being refined that we see um, in other places in the Bible as well, right? So if somebody discovers silver, you know, silver ore or silver in its natural state out in the environment, it's often, it's not pure, right? It's contaminated, it's got other minerals and other particles in it, and so for people to purify silver, they'll take the silver and they'll melt it down, and then when it turns to a liquid, those impurities, those contaminants, that dross floats to the top. It can be skimmed off the top, and then the remaining silver can be cooled down, and you're left with a purer form of silver than you started with. And so God's words are compared to silver 
that has been through that refining process, not one, not two, not three, but seven times, right? Uh, the idea being communicated here is that the Lord's words are so pure and so true, there is not even the faintest hint of imperfection in his words. And so the challenge to us and the implication here for us is that any hint of untruth should be removed from our speech. Our words should reflect those of our Lord and be pure and truthful. So again, here the, Lord, the words of God are being elevated. Uh, they're being celebrated for their truth. And what we are being called to here is a commitment to the truth of God. And I think it's really easy for most of us in this room today to verbally affirm a commitment to truth. Hey, yeah, I believe in telling the truth all the time. I think most of us would, would say that, right? There's probably not anybody in this room that would say, you know what, I lie a lot and I'm cool with that, right? Like most people don't talk like that. Um, if you do, you need to repent. But um, most of us would probably be the ones that say, yeah, that I, I believe in the truth. The truth is good. I'm committed to that. But I think the reality is a lot more complicated than that sometimes. We increasingly live in a culture where what is true and what is untrue are increasingly unclear. There's a lot of gray area, there's a lot of muddied waters, there's a lot of competing sources of information, disinformation, and a lot of it is very, very cleverly disguised. And so we live in a culture where I think it is increasingly possible, and maybe even likely, that a person can find themselves being committed to untruths and espousing untruths unintentionally, and perhaps even with good intent. And so if we're gonna talk about being a people of truth, being committed to the truth, being a people that the world could look at and say, yes, those people are defined by their truthfulness. Um, I don't think it's a matter of just saying, tell the truth anymore. In order to tell the truth, you have to be able to discern what the truth is. You can't tell the truth if you don't know what the truth is. Uh, and in order to be able to discern what the truth is, you have to put yourself in a position where your ability to discern the truth and apply wisdom and interpret the truth is not being handicapped. Um, so I am going to be just really transparent for a second and that I have really wrestled with how to preach this part of the passage for the past couple of weeks. Um, a couple times I almost just quit and picked a different psalm. Um, psalms of praise are super easy to preach on compared to stuff like this. So I almost did that a couple of times um, because... It's just hard, right? Um, and I think the reality here is that if you look around at the church, and I'm not using church specifically talking about Redeemer here, I'm using a little bit of a, a broader uh, view towards the church. Uh, but if you look at the church, we have a deeply serious problem with recognizing, understanding, interpreting, and communicating the truth. We live in a culture that has completely lost the plot on what truth is, and like a cancer, that has infected some element of the church like a rot. We're supposed to uh, pursue the truth, but again, how can we pursue the truth if we can't even recognize what it is for ourselves? And I think the reason that so many self-proclaiming Christians struggle to recognize truth, understand and interpret truth, is that we are allowing ourselves to be influenced, inundated, shaped by information, and sources that are fundamentally untrustworthy. So for application's sake here, let's put this in the context of discipleship. I think we'd all agree that it is important for believers to be discipled, 
and that discipleship genuinely moves the needle in our lives on how we think, on how we believe, on how we act, on how we speak. Discipleship does that. So if you're being discipled in the right way, if you're being discipled by the Word of God, if you're being discipled in the context of a covenant community that's genuinely committed to the truths of the Scriptures, uh, then that will change how you think, it'll change how you believe, it'll change how you act, it'll change how you talk, and it'll make you more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I think we all believe that. But if you're being discipled in the wrong way, it will also change how you think. It will change how you believe. It will change how you act. It will change how you speak. And it will draw you away from being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And I'm using discipled here in the informal sense. I'm not talking about going and sitting down at the uh, feet of some false teacher who's going to disciple you into a cult or a false religion. I'm talking about basically anything that you spend time, energy, effort, money on. Those things disciple you or shape you in some way. They impact you. And the reality is that we have a lot of Christians who are allowing themselves to be discipled by everything in the world but this book. If you want to know what you're being discipled the most by, think about where you're spending most of your time. Are you spending most of your time with a particular group of friends, a circle of friends? Then you are being discipled by them in some way. Are you spending most of your time or a great deal of your time reading certain books or listening to the radio or watching certain television programs? You are being discipled and shaped by those in some way. Do you spend a ton of time taking in information from a preferred political source? You are being discipled by that source in some way. Do you spend an inordinate amount of time on social media? If so, you are being discipled by social media in some way. So we all have things we spend a ton of time on, and I'm not trying to say it's wrong to spend time on any of those things, but what I am saying is we spend time on those things, they influence and they shape us. They impact how we think, they impact how we believe, how we talk, how we act. They shape the way we view the world. They shape, the way we, they shape what we believe to be true, what we believe to be untrue. And we're all predisposed as human beings to believe things that we want to hear. And if we're not very, very careful, then all of this can be a very, very serious problem and be very, very dangerous for the church. Look, I know none of us are monks. None of us are going to take a vow of silence and go somewhere and read the Bible for eight hours a day every day for the rest of our life. That's not realistic, and most of us don't have the amount of time to spend on that. Um, but if being discipled is important, and we really do genuinely believe, and we should, that being discipled changes how we think, believe, act, talk. And being discipled helps us interpret reality and truth through whatever lens we're being discipled by. Then we need to take stock of our own personal lives and commit to spending more time and more energy being discipled by the word of God and by the covenant community and less time being discipled and shaped by all these other things. So why have I focused so much on this? Well, it's a big part of Psalm 12, so I kind of have to if I'm preaching through it. But also importantly, there's lots of big moral issues going on today in the culture around us. There's lots of questions. There's lots of people disagreeing on basic things that would seem to be relatively easy, confirmable matters of fact. Yet people disagree anyway. And as the church and Christians, sometimes we are called to speak to these issues. How can the world trust that we are speaking the truth right if we can't get the truth right ourselves? How can the church be trusted when we take tertiary, gray area doctrines and treat them as first order issues of absolute truth that determine one standing before God? 
How can the church be trusted when we hide issues and sin that ought to be dragged out into the light? How can the church be trusted when we run around espousing stupid and inane conspiracy theories? If we aren't people of truth, it ruins our testimony, it ruins our witness, and it robs us of our ability to communicate the actual gospel truth, which is that Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose again, and he's the only solution for our problems. When we get distracted with all these other untruths and let those consume us, it robs us of our ability to be a witness. It robs us of our ability to build God's kingdom. It's counterproductive. And so today, I want to beg everybody in this room to take stock of our lives and to ask ourselves, are we committed to being a person of truth? It's not necessarily the same thing as being a very passionate or, or, or a passion or an impassionate or opinionated person. I'm talking about being a person who is committed to things that are true and right, no matter if they're convenient or not, no matter if they're personally helpful to us or not. God wants us to be a people of truth, so let's be a people of truth. Let's be shaped by the word. Let's be shaped by the covenant community so that we're better able to interpret and recognize and communicate truth so that we can build his kingdom for his glory. Uh, Now, because this psalm is a psalm that is explicitly hopeful, um, despite the limit, I do want to close on a hopeful note by pointing us to the gospel. So this psalm starts with a troubling message, save us, Lord, for the godly and faithful ones have disappeared. Sin is on the rise and being celebrated, but God promises that he will rise to protect his people. Verse 7 says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. So here's the message of hope. No matter how bad things look in our culture, No matter how bad things look in the church around us, God is preparing, preserving, and protecting a remnant of people to carry out his kingdom work. If you're already part of his people, then great. You owe it to him to live a life that is consistent with the calling to which you have been called. If you are not part of his people, here's the good news. If you will turn to to God in faith and trust in the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ, turn away from your sins, you can be part of that remnant that he's preserving, protecting, and preparing. If that's something that you're interested in, if you're not part of God's family, uh, you can come and find me after the service. You can find Austin, who was up here earlier, or any of our other elders, and we'd love to talk to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for your message. I pray that we would not be a people where godliness is diminished. I pray that we would be a bastion of truth and action that's consistent with your word. Lord, you are good. Your word is good. You're perfect. You are true. And I pray that our lives would reflect that. We cannot do it on our own. We can only do it through the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would be at work in our lives and that we would be submissive to that, that you would make us conform to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.